Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. I'm Jill Weinbanks, and I am the wearer of Jill's pins. And today, for our very special guest, David K. Johnston, I'm wearing a pin that refers to taxes, mostly unpaid, particularly real estate taxes. I'm also the author of The Watergate Girl and co-host of this and uh, hashtag Sisters-in-Law Podcasts and an MSNBC legal analyst. Throughout Trump's tenure, the public saw a display of blatant wrongdoings, from the mishandling of the COVID-19 pandemic to attacking the press, payoffs to women, emoluments and hatch act violations, and so much more. There were even settlements for his lifelong habit of grifting, a habit that lurked beneath the surface of his entire tenure, where $1.7 billion flowed into his bank account during his four years as president. What allowed that to happen? Official business with foreign governments was conducted at his hotel in Washington, D.C. What allowed that to happen? Our guest today will share answers to these questions today. Our guest is none other than David K. Johnston, the author of the brand new book, The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. This book takes readers on a guided tour of how money flowed in and out of Trump's hundreds of enterprises, showing how his family and courtiers used his presidency to enrich themselves and put national security at risk. David is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter and best-selling author of two previous books, The Making of Donald Trump and It's Even Worse Than You Think. He has lectured on an large range of subjects from economics and journalism to tax policy on every continent except Antarctica. He is the former president of investigative reporters and editors and a frequent guest on many cable channels, MSNBC included, plus CNN, BBC, ABC World News Tonight, Democracy Now!, and NPR's Morning Edition. He was a consultant for the Netflix series House of Cards. Thank you for joining us today, David. We are very grateful. Well, thank you for having me on, both you and Victor. Of course. So you covered Donald Trump and his finances as much and as long as anyone. Um, During your time doing so, you've also written articles and numerous books, yet there's even more to report in The Big Cheat. Uh, What was your goal with this book? Was it intended to be a warning to America? Uh, Yes, very much it was intended to be a warning, and that's why the end of the book has a lot of solutions about the problems we have. During Trump's administration, there were lots of stories, some of them broken by me at dcreport.org, the news service my friends and I founded, but the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, uh, elsewhere. Um, And unless you read all those news services, as I do, you wouldn't know of many of these events. So basically what you ended up with was a big pile of loose threads. And what I did was pull together those threads that I thought could be woven into a very useful narrative to explain to people, here's how they were trying to, in the modern argot, monetize the presidency. Here's how they ran roughshod over well-established rules, in some cases that go back to 1808, and thumbed their nose at the rule of law to make money, because that is what the Trump-Kushner families are about. They don't believe the rules apply to them. They believe they're special. And 
in the Trump household, at least, the rule was so long as you got money, you won. You just make sure you don't get yourself indicted. And Donald is the master at running out grand juries. He ran, ran, outran the clock on four of them when he was in his 30s. And throughout his administration, I show in the book, the bureaucracy just went along. They, they went to farcical lengths to not do what the law clearly said they were obligated to do. Of course, we don't think of bureaucrats as being particularly courageous people, so I don't know why we would be surprised at that. But the damage was enormous, and it shows the need for some fundamental changes in the law. So I'd love to ask you about a term that's often used to describe Donald Trump and appears throughout your book, and that's grifter. Um, talk to us about what that term means and broadly how that term applies to Donald Trump, both during his term in office and um, for his entire life, basically. Right. Well, Donald Trump is the third generation head of a four generation white collar crime family. So these are not people who break your leg. Uh, they don't sell drugs. Um but they cheat through promises that aren't fulfilled by refusals to pay and with contracts. Uh, and this family's crimes that start back in the late 1800s when his grandfather Friedrich came to America to escape the draft in Germany uh, and uh, uh, began um, basically running whorehouses in Washington State and Yukon Territory. He even built a hotel on land he didn't own, but it wasn't a hotel for sleeping. Um, his father, uh, Fred, ripped off the taxpayers for about $40 million in today's money, building subsidized housing for those GIs and sailors not killed in World War II. And when President Eisenhower, who had the terrible duty of sending all those men to their deaths on the beaches of Normandy, heard about this, he threw a fit in the White House. And Donald came along, same practices, and uh, his father had as his business partner, a man named Willie Tomasello, who was a front or an associate of the Genovese and Gambino organized crime families, mafia families. And Donald, his whole life, has been conning people. A, con a grifter is essentially a con artist. Uh, I'm going to sell you this condo, except I don't own that condo. <laughs> Um, the, the farcical example is I've got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. And that's how Donald's operated his whole life. And he really does believe that, you know, he is special. I mean, he, he has been saying since I've known him since 1988, longer than any other uh, serious journalist covering him, that um, he should be president. No one else can be president. There's no one else who's competent and qualified. And when I reported that before the election, there were some other journalists who thought I was sort of out there. I don't think anybody questions now that Donald believes that he should be president for life and to heck with our Constitution. And so finding ways to make money without providing a real service or benefit is what they do. The only known case of cheating in an Atlantic City casino was at Donald Trump's Trump Castle where the house was cheating novice roulette players knowingly. It's not a story I broke in 1990, I think. Um, he has been sued many times by investors, vendors, workers uh, who didn't get the money they were entitled to or the property they were entitled to. Um, so. You, you make me think I should go get the magnet I have on my, um, the hood over my stove that's, 
shows Stormy Daniels saying the only contractor he ever paid. But uh, maybe I won't do that. <laughs> um, you certainly wrote a book that does show how he monetized the presidency. And I, I want to begin talking about, in the beginning of your book, you start by saying the sad reality is that during the Trump administration, the rich got even richer and everyone else either stayed average or poor or got worse. And how did Donald Trump and his policies contribute to that problem? And why doesn't the public, particularly his voters, recognize that they are not better off now than they were when he became president? Or that at least they weren't well, during his the latest poll. Yeah, the latest polling shows that a lot of people believe that the uh, legislation Joe Biden got passed this year was Republican legislation <laughs> when no Republican voted for it. I mean, we have uh, the, the polite term is low information voters, but we have lots of people who don't pay attention to politics uh, and don't apply any critical thinking skills because our education system didn't equip them with them. Um, one of the key ways that uh, the Trump administration changed people's conditions was the 2017 tax overhaul. I wouldn't call it reform. It was an overhaul. It made very significant changes, and it was the subject of zero public hearings and zero uh, advanced documents. When Ronald Reagan did the same thing in 1986 and produced what, in retrospect, was pretty good improvements to the tax code, just the summary of all the studies that were made was three volumes long. <laughs> and there were extensive public hearings and analyses of how the burden of taxes would shift. So what the Trump tax law did was it gave an enormous tax cut to anyone like Donald, who's a sole proprietor uh, who runs owns his own businesses. Now, Donald does it through what are called pass-through corporations. The uh, losses and profits of those companies go, go on his personal tax return. Six million tax returns do that in America out of 160. It's a very common practice. And people in that category got tax cuts of up to 40 percent. Uh, Donald said, I'll pay more after this. Not possible that that would have happened. Uh, next, it gave uh, immediate write-offs called expensing for new capital equipment. So if you're ExxonMobil and you spend a billion dollars on something, you got to write off the whole billion dollars right away, not over the life of the equipment, which is typically 15 years. Um, the result was that corporate tax revenues fell for the first time by any significant amount uh, since World War II. And the share of the economy that was corporate income tax revenues, which was small already, fell by uh, about a third. Uh, Donald was a major beneficiary of that, and so were the people who own corporations who are, by and large, in the top 10% and really in the top 10th of 1% in America. Another thing that he did, by the way, people at the bottom and the middle, they got little scraps. They got nothing. If you're upper middle class like me, my total tax burden actually went up. Yeah not down. Um, the, uh, another thing he did was he let polluters run wild, particularly electric utilities who burn coal, 
have coal ash, and they stopped the efforts to make sure that coal ash ponds, as they get older, don't collapse and ruin drinking water. And we've seen half a dozen major incidents of this in cities as large as a third of a million people not being able to drink water from their river for weeks until it cleared. Uh, That's an enormous shift that affects people's health and therefore their ability to have an income. And there's just policy after policy of that. Most of those I detailed in the second book in my Trump trilogy, uh, uh, It's Even Worse Than You Think, which came out in 2018 on the first anniversary of his presidency. But in this book, I do go through these particularly the tax policies that hurt everyone. And then they did all sorts of bad contracting practices. Um, we didn't have ambassadors in some key countries. So when decisions were being made on whether a foreign country would invest a huge amount of money here or there, we basically weren't at the table. Wow. So let's go back to, I want to follow up on what Victor asked about the grifter um, comment or use of that, because you talk in your book about how ever since New York days, he was known as a cheater, a liar, a manipulator, and a deadbeat. And I know that that's true not just in New York, because I know people who were involved in the construction of Trump Tower in Chicago, who got cheated and who threatened to bring suit. And his lawyers said, no point in doing that. It'll cost you more in legal fees than the amount that we're not paying you. And they deliberately calculated the amount to withhold to prevent a lawsuit, sort of like Texas preventing suit, but that's a whole different subject. Um, So talk about his financial dealings that support the claims that he's a cheater and a scoundrel, a manipulator, a deadbeat, et cetera. Well, um, you, you provide a very good example. What Donald typically will do is he'll not pay you the last yeah. uh, 15 or 20 percent, which is the profit margin on for vendors in these yeah. deals. And you have a contract for uh, even a million dollars. We're talking about $150,000, $200,000 to go to see a lawyer. And the lawyer say, look, just fighting this if we win was going to cost you $200,000. And there's a good chance we won't win. And Donald will spend unlimited money to go after you to give a signal to everybody else. Instead of using enforcers who break your leg or, or burn your house down, Donald uses lawyers who are completely unethical in their approach to these things. And in fact, Michael Cohen has owned up to, you know, that was his job. He was one of one, he was his chief enforcer on the, on the legal side. The other thing Donald will do in these deals is, um, you need uh, a document, uh, a copy of a contract or a letter to prove that not only did you, you didn't fabricate it, it's in his files. And instead of turning over the document, they will turn over, uh, 250,000 images of documents and say, go find it, which is expensive. Uh, Donald has done this to people who invested in condo projects all over the country uh, where people put up money and then nothing was built. And he went, oh, well, you know, sorry, and tried to keep the money. And in some cases did, in some cases settled for a small amount of money to end the litigation. That's how he does yeah. business. He's, he, 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 he cheats no matter what. Yeah, he cheated the owners of the condos in that building too, but... So the question is, how does he keep getting financing and how does he keep getting suckers to work for him or to buy condos from him? How does he keep getting away with it? 
Well, um, there are always people who you can fool. And the thing about being a, a con artist like Donald is, so you trick somebody to do a whole graphics presentation for you to market one of your hotels, and you cheat that person. There's another graphics artist out there who you can cheat. Yeah. And another one after that, and another one after that. And until he became president, it was easy to just, that's why he, the book, The Art of the Deal, yeah. basically talks about this serial yeah. moving along. And that's what grifters do. I, I've written stories about uh, people who ran cons in their 20s, and they, were the, they didn't run, they were the junior people. And I, my stories focused on the people in their 40s who were running them, but I put their names in the record. Years later, I wrote about the junior people now. They've been promoted. And I've interviewed FBI agents who tell me there's literally a career ladder out there for con artists. Oh, God. Um, and we have very weak white-collar laws in America. Uh, we have lots of complexity, lots of procedural measures in court, and lots of vagaries. And one of the things we need is some fundamental reform of white collar law in America. Yeah, so you, I mean, you start the big cheap talking about what you call lie one, which made Trump's campaign appear to be a popular movement Americans were aching uh, to enjoy. Um, what was lie number one? Well, uh, Donald announced on the morning of June 16th, 2015 at Trump Tower that he was running. Now he had done this before. And four years earlier, when he announced he was running, all the politics reporters who cover the horse race, not the substance, they all treated him as a serious candidate. Lawrence O'Donnell at MSNBC and me independently kept saying, no, he's running for a new contract with NBC. And when he got one, he announced, you know, I should be president. The country needs me. No one else is qualified. But right now, my TV show needs me more. Guess what? The politics reporters had egg on their face. This time around, when he announced, I realized, oh my God, they're going to treat him as a vanity project, which is what they did for uh, uh, close to a year. So he arrives um, at Trump Tower with Melania. He comes down the escalator and there's a crowd. He says it's thousands of people. Anybody who's been in the lobby of Trump Tower knows that that's a lie. It would be hundreds of people. Uh, and he makes this horrible statement right in the beginning that the Mexican government is sending rapists and murderers into the U.S. He's met with wild applause. And the minute that happens, I go, wait a second. This is Midtown Manhattan. Where, where did he bust people in from West Virginia? <laughs> How did this, this This is the center of multicultural liberal yeah. America. 43 times there's this wild applause for his most outrageous and racist statements. Well, the very next day, uh, his racist statements don't make the New York Times. There's sort of a broad, general, da-da-da-da-da comment. Um, and then the Hollywood Reporter breaks the story that those cheers came from actors, or technically extras, the people you see in the background of a movie or in the jury box on a Law & Order episode, who were paid 50 bucks each to show up and cheer on command. And he created this impression that there's a huge racist uprising in America. Well, it turns out he tapped into something. There is a huge number of people out there who hate the civil rights movement. That's become very clear. They want to make America white again, which is what was the coded language of make America great again. 
But that lie suddenly made Donald a serious person in many people's minds, and it began, that's why I call it the original lie. Yeah, so I mean, so from long before his campaign for presidency and ever since, Trump has also repeatedly said that he's a self-made billionaire. Um, first, is that true? And second, why does he say that? Does it help him politically or does it make him feel better? Um, what do you think is behind him always saying that he's a self-made billionaire? Donald claimed he was worth uh, over $10 billion during the campaign. In fact, he once said 11. There is not now and there has never been a scintilla of verifiable evidence that Donald was ever worth a billion dollars. Back in 1990, he and I were walking down the boardwalk in Atlantic City. I said, how much are you worth, Donald? And he goes, $3 billion. And I said, I don't believe you. He stops dead, turns to me and says, what's the name of your editor? And I said, oh, let me give you his direct dial phone number. And he says, why don't you believe me? And I said, Donald, I'm a newspaper reporter with eight children. I'm able to pay all my bills on time. You have hundreds of people who are saying you can't pay them. And you've acknowledged you can't pay them. If you really had $3 billion, it might hurt, but you could sell something or borrow against it. So, no, I don't believe you. Well, later that day, he was in New York. He flew back in his helicopter. And he told a TV reporter he was worth $5 billion. (laughs) He just (laughs) makes this stuff up. And uh, to Donald and his household, all that matters is getting the money and winning. Uh, Mary Trump has written about this, his niece, in her book. And uh, there's no right or wrong. Uh, Your property? Well, I just haven't gotten your property yet, is the way that the Trumps think. So it's very important to him to say he's on a par with the people. Now, Donald is a wealthy man. I, I wouldn't dispute that Donald's a wealthy man. He's, I'm a wealthy man, but he's way out of my league. But he's nowhere near being a billionaire, and he's always desperate for cash. And then you ask about where is he getting the money? Well, that's the great concern. Uh, the, uh, his son, Eric, said in 2008, we're getting all the money we need out of Russia. I and other people have documented numerous deals, hundreds of them Donald has done with Russian criminals, sketchy Russian people, uh, people who have reputations for being like him. Uh, In some cases, they vastly overpaid for real estate. And all of that suggests money laundering on Donald's part. Um, For years, a full-blown illegal casino operated on the floor directly underneath Trump's apartment in Trump Tower. He has the top three floors, and the floor right below was a casino. When the FBI finally broke this up, he goes, "I, I had no idea. If you've ever been in Trump Tower, there's no way he couldn't have an idea unless he didn't want to know because of the way you get up into that building. So Donald uh, has always done business with criminals, and it isn't just in the New York construction business. In fact, when the biggest contractors in New York, and Donald claims to be the biggest, he wasn't even in the top 10. When the biggest contractors went to the FBI and said, you got to get these mafia guys out of our pocket. We can't do business. We can't make a living as long as these mafia guys are, are holding us up. Donald ran the other direction to the mafia. Interesting. Well, it, it seems like this is all part of his sales pitch to look like a winner because anyone who has followed Trump and his behavior understands that he is all about self-image, public perception, selling himself as a yeah. winner. He tried to create that image and he even tried to make himself attractive, particularly, he said, I love the uneducated, I love the poor. Uh, 
I said I love the poorly educated. Okay, the poorly educated. Thank you. And, of course, he promised that he would guarantee jobs and economic growth and repeatedly said that, but the numbers seem to be quite different than his promise. And, again, it's that question of how does he get away with this? How do people not see that he didn't create jobs? He said, I'm the greatest job creator ever. Well, no Biden's completely outperforming him. And so I just don't, I don't get it. How many jobs did he create? And why does he get away with these false claims? So here's what's important to keep in mind. Most Americans don't have advanced degrees as uh, people who are probably listening to this podcast do. They don't pay a lot of attention to politics and they especially don't pay attention to governance, which is what we focus on in DC Report. Uh, how politici- what politicians do rather than what they say. Um, they pay a lot more attention to uh, football, baseball, hockey. Uh, they're not dumb because no. all you have to do is sit in a blue-collar bar and listen to an argument over how an umpire called a baseball <laughs> call, and you'll discover, boy, do these people know the rules of the yeah. game. So Donald just asserts things. And whenever anybody challenges him, he attacks the person who makes the mm-hmm. assertion, and he muddies the waters. Under Donald, the economy uh, hit 3% his first year, and then it slipped down a little bit in 2018 and a little more in 2019. And of course, then after the pandemic, it went negative. The first president to leave office since Herbert Hoover with fewer jobs at the end of Mm -hmm. his term than at the start. He averaged over the pre-pandemic period, let's exclude the pandemic, okay? Before the pandemic, uh, he averaged 187,000 jobs a month. Biden is averaging more than 600,000 jobs a month. And that number would be much higher, but for the fact that state and local governments have been cutting jobs. A lot of them teachers who don't want to risk COVID, so they've taken early yeah. retirement. And uh, so Donald promised 6% economic growth. The best he ever got for a year was three, which is a little below the average Mm -hmm. of his lifetime. He was born in 1946, so more than 70 years. But how many people pay attention to the gross domestic product? How many people can define gross domestic product uh, or understand these uh, these concepts? They they, they don't. I I know, but David, my point is I, I have a high degree of respect for people who have only a high school diploma. Um... They have common sense, and I don't get how they don't see in their daily lives that they were worse off during Trump than ever before, that he didn't care about them. They believe what he said about COVID uh, as well as about jobs. So that's, right. that's what's right. bothering me is how can we yeah, communicate and, 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 to and them what reality is so that they will get this? Well, and Jill, there are many very educated people. I've talked to highly educated people who believe the COVID is all a big hoax. Um, I I think there's something else that Donald tapped into. And Donald used many lines from my books and reporting from what he saw me on TV. He didn't read my books, but he saw me on TV. I know from people around him, he would call him up and say, did you see what Johnson said last night on MSNBC or CNN? Um, 90% of Americans reported less income in 2019 than they did in the mid-1970s, almost a half century earlier. 
For every dollar of equity they added in their homes, the last time I ran this number was about 2012, but at least as of then, for every dollar of equity people had added in their homes over that period of time, they took on $2 of debt. That's not a prescription for prosperity, that's for being on the hamster wheel till you drop debt. And people's health care is much more expensive. Uh, employers no longer uh, do it as an addition to your salary. They take a bunch of the cost out of your salary, and then you have big co-pays on top of that. Uh, and so economically, 90% of Americans are worse off. They didn't realize they were getting better. In fact, during a couple of the Obama years, uh, wages went up significantly, and I wrote about it at the time. They went up a modest amount one year, it tripled the median wage the next year, and it tripled again the next year. But it was left them still so far behind. So Donald says he's making you better off, and he's selling the sizzle, even though the stake isn't even there. Wow. I mean, during the course of his presidency, you also write that he made more than $1 million a day, which to me is very disturbing. What was the source of that income and what made that possible? Yeah, let me be clear. He had a million dollars, more than a million dollars of revenue. Right. Uh, Donald reported his revenue, which for the term of his presidency was uh, one, more than $1.6 billion. Uh, so this was money paid to his businesses. And when Donald was on his way to the White House, roughly an hour after he took the oath of office, on the first day of his entire life of any public service of any kind, he stopped the motorcade. And all the TV networks showed the family got out. They took a two-minute turn on the pavement. But not one of them pointed out he did it in front of the Trump Hotel, which was leased from the federal government, the old office building that was originally built uh, 140 years ago under the supervision of one of the most corrupt politicians in American history, Leland Stanford, as in Stanford University. Ooh. But if you were a favor seeker, if you're a foreign diplomat, you understood immediately the signal was, you want something from Donald Trump, you will pay tribute. And suddenly his hotel is full. Uh, the restaurant and bar are taking money in at the rate of $25 million a year, which is just phenomenal for a restaurant, particularly in a hotel, off the chart phenomenal. Um, the Saudis make a big show of taking out two rooms at rack rate. You know, you go check into a hotel that says 99, you paid $99, you look on the little rack in the uh, uh, door when it closes and it says the top price is 512. Well, that's what Donald was doing. Uh, the, the American president of T-Mobile, the mobile telephone company that wanted to take over Sprint, made a big show of going there repeatedly, having executives go there, and Donald did him a $26 billion favor. Um, so throughout the administration, people were expected, if they wanted favors, to spend money with him. They might do it at the Dural, his uh, resort and golf course right by the Miami airport, the predatory lenders moved their meeting there. The Kuwaiti government, and I think of Kuwait not so much as a country, but a business that owns a lot of oil-rich real estate. Uh, they hold an annual Freedom Day celebration to thank us for throwing Saddam Hussein out of their country three decades ago. They moved it to his hotel. Everybody got the message. Pay tribute or don't expect a favor from Donald Trump. What laws do you think should be made to ensure that that doesn't happen ever again? I mean, Congressman Schiff passed the Protect Democracy Act um, last week. Is there anything else that you think should be done to prevent this? 
Yes. Uh, first of all, I think that the uh, Congress should pass a law that makes the tax returns of presidential candidates public for at least six years. Now, we can't require the candidate to release it because the Constitution sets the standards for being president. But nothing prevents Congress from making tax returns public. In fact, tax returns were public record in the 1920s. And there are news clips about that. And, uh, uh, you know, Julius Rosenwald, the head of Sears Roebuck, reported yesterday he made $5,411,291, uh, $5, whatever, and paid so much in tax. And so all Congresses do is set a threshold. Say you came in in the top three candidates in one primary. Now the IRS will make your tax return in full for the last six years public, all the schedules and everything else. Um, that's one. Uh, secondly, Congress needs to say any assets owned by a president must be put into a blind trust. And if they are operating businesses, they will be sold uh, and the president will have no role in picking the trustee whatsoever. Uh, to, because otherwise, think about if we said, yeah, Donald had to sell his properties and the Saudis came and said, okay, well, tell you what, we'll pay you twice what they're worth because we want Donald to really like us. And Donald, in fact, once said, the Saudis pay $40, $50 million each for apartments from me, so why shouldn't I like them? Uh, and th there are other simple reforms like this in the back of the book. And, and we have to be careful always about reforms. Um, after Watergate, which I got a little tiny piece of the story back then as a young reporter, um, a whole bunch of financial reforms, finance, uh, campaign finance reforms were passed. And the toughest in the country were in Michigan, where I was in Lansing for the Detroit Free Press. They backfired. Campaign finance is much worse today than it was during the Nixon era awful as that was in terms of who has influence and power and how politicians have to respond to that influence and power. But nonetheless, Congress really needs to recognize that after 44 presidents who did what they thought was best for the country, we, we might hate what Andrew Jackson did or FDR did, but all of them tried to make the country better. We got a president who's all about him. And that means we need to now have rules because it's no longer guaranteed that it's be treated as a public trust. So if there was such a law, do you think that Donald Trump would not run for office because he would not allow his uh, tax returns to become public? Well, he'd go to court and do what Roy Cohn taught him to do. First of all, he'd attack Congress. You're the enemy of the people. You're illegitimate. You're, you're hateful power mongers who hate the American people. And then he would uh, delay, 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 delay. Uh, one of the reasons that the Manhattan District Attorney's indictment hasn't been returned yet by the grand jury is that when they got the documents, Donald spent four years uh, keeping uh, back and went to the Supreme Court twice. It wasn't a million pages. It was five million pages. And as you know, Jill, the prosecutors have to have every single shred of paper examined because they can't have something hit them as a surprise during trial. Exactly. That is for sure. Um, I, I want to just make one comment because you referred to the Watergate um, and the post-Watergate legislation to control campaign finance reform, which was essential because Watergate happened largely because... There was so much money hidden in the White House in safes, in cash. Yep. And unfortunately, yep. it isn't that that legislation failed. It's that the Supreme Court undid it 
in Citizens yes. United. Mm -hmm. So I just want to say right. legislation well, can work if Valeria, you have a legitimate United, uh, Supreme Court. Yeah. Yeah. And, and in fact, the Supreme Court in McDonald uh, basically legalized the bribery of politicians. Yes. There've been a whole series of bad court yes. decisions, but what's happened with these decisions uh, is people who bundle money have become critical. And if you want to run for Congress, your real constituency is no longer the voters. It yeah. is uh, the, the people who will finance your campaign. All of the, the original uh, proposals were well-intended. There's no question about that. And, and uh, uh, cash was all over the place. Uh, in Michigan, we had a state senator who told us that when he was campaigning, he went around his district and people shoved money in his hands. And at the night, he'd go to the motel because his district was enormous in upstate uh, Michigan. And he would put it on, on the bed or the, the uh, dresser and just count it out and treated as his own money. Well, it's not just so, Trump, of course, who's right. done this. No, it's, it's the it's system. The, but it's also his family, his entire family. We're t talking about Jared and uh, Ivanka. We're talking about all right. the rest of his family and even at least one cabinet member who enriched themselves during his presidency. And maybe just to save time, we could have you just talk about what some of the worst things are in terms of Jared, sure. Ivanka, Elaine Chow, wow. um, anyone else in the cabinet that sure. I haven't named? Um, well, there are two cabinet secretaries I read about. Uh, Wilbur Ross, oh, who yeah. was in bed with Russian money launderers yeah. up to his eyeballs and never should have been approved by Congress. And then Elaine Chow, who essentially never spoke except in one limited circumstance to American journalists when she was transportation secretary, but went out of her way to have her staff court communist Chinese journalists. Mm -hmm. And her father owns a shipping company with about 50 dry bulk ships that ships uh, iron ore and wheat and things like that between China and other places, Brazil, the U.S., etc. And she turned the transportation department into a marketing arm for her father's business. Uh, I think there's grounds to indict her for this, but I don't expect that to happen. Uh, Jared Kushner, as the Trump's approach to the White House, was in deep financial trouble. He wildly overpaid for 666 Fifth Avenue, a high-rise office building. Uh, he was in trouble because his loans were coming due and he couldn't pay them. And he went to the people in Qatar, where America has its most important Middle East base. That's where the Central Command operations are, the U.S. Army Central Command operations. And uh, asked them to loan him $800 million on terms very favorable to the Kushners. And the Qataris said, you know, we're rich, but we're not stupid, and we're not going to make that loan. <laughs> Donald Trump then turned on the Qataris and took up the cause of the Saudis and the Emiratis, who are enemies of the Qataris, uh, he called the uh, Qataris uh, financiers of terrorism. Well, the Qataris finance two terrorist groups, but the Saudis finance 60 groups and with vastly more money. So American national security was submarined by Donald Trump so that his son-in-law could get bailed out of a bad investment. Uh, and Donald doesn't know a Sunni from a Shia. He doesn't know anything about the Middle East. So uh, here you're seeing him motivated purely by family interests, not by some geopolitical strategy. Uh, the Kushners uh, then got 18 sweetheart guaranteed loans from the federal government. The guarantees are from the federal government. 
10 years interest only on their schlocky properties. The Kushners are terrible slumlords. There's a 251-page decision by an administrative law judge in Maryland about how they rented people apartments that had sewage coming out of the kitchen sink. And I mean, all sorts of horrible things. And they say, oh, no, no, we don't do anything wrong. We're normal. You know, we charge people three times the fees. No, 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 there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's illegal in that state. And you or I would never have gotten these sweetheart loan guarantees unless we had someone in the White House helping us along. Uh, And to this day, that's kept the Kushners in incredibly uh, deep cash flow. And now, what is Jared Kushner doing? He's going to the Saudis and the Emiratis and raising money for him to manage. Billions of dollars for him to manage is his new business after he's done them a favor by attacking our interests in Qatar. So, so I, I guess oh, – yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was just going to maybe follow up with um, what laws or solutions are there to this? Um, are there something – you know, you've mentioned one, but you – have a number at the end of your book. Let's just maybe list some of them before we run out of time. Well, the emoluments clause was put into our constitution to make sure that neither a state government nor a foreign power could influence the president financially. And the the framers of our constitution understood well their history. They knew that there were English kings who were secretly on the payroll of the French uh, on the promise that they would restore Catholicism as the official religion in England, for example. Uh, when a gift was made to our ambassador to France, uh, Benjamin Franklin, of a jeweled snuff box, you know, tobacco snuff, it became a huge scandal about whether he could receive this or it was corrupting. When the courts were presented with emoluments clause cases, the judges all basically ran away from them as fast as they could. They didn't do their duty and uh, say, we're going to litigate these issues and bring them out. And when Trump left office, the Supreme Court's position became, it's moot. And that's always been the court's position. If something is over, it's moot. They're not going to waste their time with it. They're not there to, to opine when there isn't an active case. So one of the most important things is we need to... Um, uh, actually deal with the emoluments clause and Congress needs to pass some legislation indicating the intent of Congress about that. Secondly, I think we need to codify that certain things are inherently high crimes and misdemeanors under the Constitution. Uh, The language high crimes and misdemeanors for impeaching a president was put there as a sort of kitchen sink catch-all. During Watergate, I forget who said... Uh, When asked, what is it? It's whatever Congress says it is. And so uh, having a financial entanglement with a foreign government when you're president or anyone in your family is on the payroll of the federal government or working in the White House, that should be grounds for removal from office. Um, So some definition of that. Um, We also need to... uh, rethink the power of the president to make any national security secret public that he chooses when it's for his benefit. Uh, Jared Kushner and Ivanka repeatedly had to refile what's called their SF-86s. That's what you file to get a national security clearance. And theirs didn't even match up. Their, their, Their financial disclosures to the Office of Government Ethics, they didn't even match up. 
And so I think Congress needs to come up with some new legislation that says if there's a problem with your financial disclosure, um, A, you're obligated to turn over the documents, and if you choose not to, that's fine, but you're removed from office. Uh, and there's, there's other reforms I list in the back of the book. Um, but frankly, I don't recall all okay. of them. Uh, well, I think our, I, I'm going to encourage all of our listeners and viewers to get the book and look at the solutions and also to look at um, what the House just passed, Adam Schiff's uh, law called mm -hmm. Protecting Our Democracy, which does codify norms, things that we never thought a president would do so they didn't have to yeah. be laws. Yeah. And the Emoluments Clause doesn't have any teeth, as you're pointing out. We need a law that says, if you do the following, there is a penalty, and spells it out, makes it a crime, or makes it a, a financial penalty. Whatever the law should be, it needs to be something that's enforceable. And I, I, right. I, I want us to move ahead to the January 6th insurrection, and I know Victor has some starting questions on that. Yeah, I mean, so one of the most disturbing disturbing parts of your book is what happened in his 2020 election and leading up to the January 6th insurrection. You described how he raised more than $250 million for the Stop the Steal rally, but most of that money went not for the rally or the frivolous lawsuits, but into Trump's pockets. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about that? Yeah, Donald uh, immediately can't accept the idea that he was voted out. So he comes up with this cockamamie claim that the election was stolen and lots of people who believe in Donald, who want to uh, go back to having America be white again, et cetera, uh, bought into this. Astonishingly, something like 60% of Republicans in polls uh, say that they believe Joe Biden lost the election. And so Donald immediately started raising money. And one of the stories I tell is about a, a man in hospice care who hears Rush Limbaugh say, Donald needs your help, send money. He's $1,000 a month income. He sends $500 to help Donald stop the steal. Pretty soon, this generous gift turns out to be repeated. They tap his bank account again and again and again and again and again until they take all of his money. He's not unique. Stacy Blatt, the victim in this case, there were thousands of people who had their bank accounts tapped because unless they read the fine print, they didn't know that they'd authorized repeated taking from their account, even if they checked one time only. And you or I would probably be prosecuted by the local DA for that. Uh, here, you might not be able to prove Donald did it, but certainly the people who uh, were involved in the operational level should be prosecuted for it. Again, weak white collar crime laws. So Donald spent $9 million, he says, on lawyers. And they say he says because he famously declared he wasn't going to pay Rudy Giuliani's legal bills because he wasn't happy with his performance. Surprise, surprise. The rest of the money under our laws, he's pretty much free to spend on himself. And um, I believe when we get the next report, we're going to see that he's raised somewhere close to half a billion dollars so I call Donald our beggar in chief. That's his occupation now. He begs for money. I get between oh four and eight emails and texts a day, um, especially the ones from Don Jr. that say, I spoke with my father last night. And you're the only person of our support, generous supporters, who didn't respond to my email yesterday. And my father asked me to reach out to you personally. There are people dumb enough to believe that, clearly, because they send money. And... Donald's going to need money. 
when he is indicted, and he may be indicted in as many as five jurisdictions, uh, any criminal defense lawyer is going to want their money up front unless they think it's worth the publicity value to represent him for free because he doesn't pay his lawyers. No lawyer is going to think uh, it's worth and, it. No, no yeah, good I, lawyer. I, I, one would hope not. No good lawyer, yes. No, and, and lots of competent lawyers, it's very clear they won't represent him because he won't follow legal advice. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so the, the whole stop the steal thing is really his newest grift. It sets him up for his new occupation. And if you think about it, it's a perfect thing for Donald. Donald is not a hard worker despite claims by Ivanka, his daughter, and others. He's a lazy guy. He disappears for long periods of time. He has big mood swings where he just withdraws for a while. And here, all he has to do is pay people to run these campaigns and rake in the money. So maybe he will become a billionaire if he keeps it up at this pace. But <laughs> if he keeps going, maybe now, so. Now, you, you mentioned the investigations and what could happen. Um, there are two key ones pending right now in New York. One is the Attorney General Letitia James, and the other is DA Vance, and, which is one is civil and one is criminal. And both of them relate to fraud uh, by, by Trump, relating to how he reports the value of properties he owns, which is they're not worth much when he has to pay taxes on them, but they're worth an awful lot when he wants them as the collateral for a loan. And right. now Vance is leaving office at the end of the year, although, of course, um, his office can continue the case. It's not only his case. It's his office's case. But, you know, any predictions on what's going to happen with those? And mention sure. you said five. I've only mentioned two. Tell me what the other three that you think are important are. Well, the others are the Westchester DA, Mimi right. Roca, who you and I both know yes, from TV, who's the former federal prosecutor. Uh, she's looking at his property tax valuations for his estate, Seven Springs, and uh, his golf course, the Westminster, uh, uh, Westchester, New York golf course. The district, the Attorney General of the District of Columbia, who's investigating what happened to all the inaugural money. And one of the stories I tell in the book that I don't think people know is about the effort to get uh, money from Russians and others who can't contribute to this through the side door and not report mm. it. Um, and then uh, there's the Fulton County, Georgia yeah. district attorney. That's essentially the same geography as Atlanta right. over the effort to uh, steal the election for Donald uh, in Georgia with the threat to Brad Raffsenberger if he didn't find 11,000 whatever it was votes that Donald needed. And- um, in the New York cases, uh, Donald has been noticed for a deposition on January 7th by the attorney general who has inherent civil but not criminal authority. She can get criminal authority, but she has civil authority inherently. He is no doubt, or his lawyers are going to say, you're trying to bootstrap a civil case to get testimony to use against me in a criminal case, and that'll probably delay that deposition. The uh, criminal case, and the civil case involves Donald saying, for example, uh, one of his buildings uh, for property tax purposes and insurance pur- for property tax purposes is worth 1.3 million. That's his uh, golf course in Westminster in uh, Westchester County. But on his presidential forms, he says 50 million under oath, and 
you know, I've, I've protested my property tax for the house that I'm sitting in now, but, you know, it was a function of about 10% difference, and we split the difference on the value. But you can't say $1.3 million and $50 million and not be committing fraud. Uh, the Manhattan DA's case is, I believe, not going to be a tax case. There'll be a tax element in it, but it is going to be a New York State RICO case, Article 460. Mm-hmm patterned after the federal RICO statute that will argue that the Trump organization poses as a business, but it's really a criminal enterprise. And this is one of the things I teach. I'm not a lawyer, but I've taught at Syracuse University's Law School now since 2008. I lecture all over the world about the law. And um, it's one of the things we'll be exploring in my class this spring is these cases against Donald Trump and what they mean more broadly for our whole society. Uh, I, I'm confident he's going to be indicted in Manhattan. Uh, Simance hired Mark Pomerantz, a former federal prosecutor who used the federal RICO law very effectively. And then as a defense lawyer, fought it, not only fought it effectively, but wrote the legal treatise on it. Uh, hiring him signaled they're serious about indicting Donald Trump. Any idea when? Uh, Want to make a prediction on that? Um, I, I, I No, I mean, I... It, I do not know. They they have impaneled a new grand jury. The current grand jury said, okay, we did our duty three days a week for whatever long the period the grand jury was. I presume it was six months. And impaneled a new one. And that's understandable. Why would you, you know, you've done your three days a week and disrupted your life for a while. Um, but that they impanel a new grand jury tells you they're just moving ahead on this. And what about so. D.C. and the insurrection and the damage that that caused? Do you think he could ever be held accountable um, there? Well, we're seeing, um, uh, what is it, so far more than 500 and maybe it's up to 600 people arrested. Over six. Prosecutors have been filing really low-level charges against a lot of these people, which uh, even some of the judges sentencing people have commented on. Uh, But more importantly, the the January 6th committee is – uh, made it very clear that this was not a spontaneous event. They have lots of evidence that this was planned, and they say they're going to hold hearings the way Senator Irvin did. Uh, and I hope PBS uh, and the cable channels run those at night uh, from the tape during the day so we can all watch them. Um, uh, Liz Cheney says they're going to go on for weeks, which tells you they got a lot of information about how this was planned and financed and carried yeah, out. They've had over 300 witnesses, so I think that right. there is a lot, and I agree that public hearings are essential to America understanding what happened there. Well, David, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I just want to give you the opportunity, if you want to add anything else um, about your book for our audience, um, I guess now now's the time to do so. Okay. Well, I've covered Donald Trump longer than any other serious journalist, more than 33 years now. Uh, Donald and I have had a pretty contentious relationship once he discovered I didn't just put his nonsense in the newspaper as he was used to uh, many, many, even good journalists doing uh, because they're not investigative reporters. And in this book, this is my the end of my trilogy. There was the making of Donald Trump that told about how he was uh, he's been tried twice for income tax fraud, which I don't think hardly anybody knew it was civil, not criminal, but he lost both cases and his unsavory background. And then there was it's even worse than you think, which was about the, um, what he was doing to the government and that they were fulfilling the promise that, as Steve Bannon put it, to deconstruct the administrative state. High-level language for, we're going to ruin the federal government. Uh, 
Um, and in this book, what I wanted to do, and I know people have Trump fatigue. Oh, my God, do I have to hear more about this man? Yes, unfortunately, if you want to save your liberties in our republic, we're not done. Uh, and so there were all these stories that appeared, you know, for a day in Politico and uh, briefly mentioned on CNN. And what I did is pick the ones I thought were really revealing of the character and nature of what they were doing to turn the government into a cash machine for the family and what they could do if they get back into power, which would be far, far more than they have, and put it into a narrative. And Every review that I've had published has been very positive about that. And they all say that uh, th there were all sorts of things people didn't know about. They didn't appreciate the significance of them and that it's an easy read. You don't need to have a degree in economics or law yes. to understand the book. That's been the signature point of all of my books is if you have a high school diploma, you can read my books. And so I hope uh, people do read it. Uh, pass the book along and tell others about it, because if we don't understand the nature of how the Trump Kushner family saw this opportunity of controlling the White House, there are other people out there, people who are better managers than Donald, who are hard workers, unlike Donald, who are smart and educated, unlike Donald, and they could really ruin our democracy. I mean, it is a book that all generations need to read and a book that all generations can read. Um, so again, The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. Um, we encourage our audience to buy it and read it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening or watching to this episode of iGen Politics with David K. Johnson today. Jill and I learned so much and we hope you did too. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, follow us wherever you get your podcasts um, and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and be sure to subscribe on YouTube as well. See you next week.